0: Amen. Come and see what God has done. What a message. Appreciate that. I know you're thinking it's about time to quit, but I still have a message to uh, deliver this morning. So um, snuggle in, get ready to hear from the Lord, I hope. Before I get started, I do just want to say a special thanks to the Silver Threads who hosted the Christmas house last Friday and provided for us a feast of biblical proportions and also um, modeled Christ-like servitude uh, in, in in an incredible way. We really appreciate that. And thanks for the music, the carols, the food, the fellowship. It's a wonderful time. And it reminded me of even that song, Come and See What God has done as I think about the way we interact as a body. And even as Kevin said, if it wasn't for Christ, if it wasn't for God, we wouldn't be doing this. So come and see what God has done. Let's see what God will do this morning. Um, We are in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and his message is about the king and his kingdom. And we have particularly been in Matthew chapter 4 looking at the temptation of Christ. And as we think about the open house and we lick our chops, reminiscing about the wonderful foods and all the variety of desserts that we enjoyed, and, and lots and lots of people here and the fellowship to enjoy it with, make the stark transition back to the wilderness, to the desert. Jesus is out there. All by himself, with the exception of his enemy, Satan. And he's very hungry. He's practically starving to death after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Temptation number one out in the wilderness from the enemy was the temptation to turn the stones into bread. Jesus was hungry. Satan knew that. Jesus responded that man does not live by bread alone. The idea is that he is trusting his life to God more than the physical sustenance. There's more than bread. Man needs bread, but what he needs above that is the God of bread. We also looked at temptation number two as we watched Satan cast the seeds of doubt. And he begins this with, if you are the son of God. And we learn that we need to be careful about the ifs because Satan is audacious and he will cast out into any area of our lives that he chooses, even though we might think it's a given. It's a done deal. Everybody understands this, not Satan. He wants us to live in confusion. He wants to pull us away from God. He doesn't want us to live on solid ground or build on the rock. He wants us to live in uncertainty and insecurity and anxiety so we will turn to the wrong things to try to satisfy those. So that is as far as we got with temptation number two last time. This morning we're going to finish this temptation and uh, then after this morning, of course, we have the Christmas season. Next week we'll have the Christmas choir slash cantata and also Christmas play. The kids will have an opportunity to minister to us. So I encourage you to come out for that. Then on Christmas Day, we will have a Christmas worship service for about an hour from 11 to 12. We'll come, we'll sing Christmas carols and worship the Lord. And I'll have a short, I better not say the word short. I'll have a message, but we will keep it within uh, the hour. Um, As far as I'm concerned, we will. And then we have, uh, let's see, after that Sunday is New Year's Day. And I will be visiting my family in Maryland. And the Honorable Jeffrey Preachett Boy Liverman will be uh, delivering the, the sermon for us. He's graciously agreed to do that so we could go visit family and uh, see my dad there. So that will bring us into January. Uh, by the way, as lot, God's doing a lot of new things in this season because we'll also have a transition. Um, we've been treated for... I'm not sure how many years it's been, but John Rosima has been teaching out of the book of Ephesians, uh, bringing us very, very good, solid scholarly teaching. We appreciate that. Job well done to John. We're going to miss that. And we're going to transition to Corky, who's going to be teaching us the book of Jonah. So that's what we will enter into the new year. So I just want to encourage everybody, please come out to our adult Sunday school class, um, if at all possible, we, we really learn, we have good discussion, and uh, there's, there's probably not a Sunday that goes by where something isn't brought up that we didn't know or we hadn't thought about. So God's grace is very evident in that. I want to encourage you to be a part of that. But for today, we're back in Matthew chapter 4. We're studying the enemy's tactics, but also the response of the king, the ruler of the universe, to this great enemy. The last time we looked at the enemy's tactic of, cast, um, of casting doubt, this morning we will look at the enemy's tactic of tempting people to test God. What does it mean to put God to the test? Have we ever put God to the test? Is it possible that some of us, even right now in our Christian experience, are putting God to the test? To the test. Those are the things that we will tackle in this passage this morning. I'm going to read just verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So, Jesus resisted the first temptation by quoting Scripture. So, Satan, as crafty as he is, comes to Jesus. Now, he's the one quoting Scripture. He's the one throwing that at Jesus. He's the one saying... It is written. Satan is the worst kind of theologian there is. He's a crooked one. He's the kind of theologian that knows God's word and he can quote God's word. But it's only for the purpose of poisoning it. It's only for the purpose of defiling the truth and defiling the person. See, truth can be used to bring forth tremendous deception. And we can say, well, it's in the Bible, and it's God's Word, and it's got to be true. That is true. But truth itself can be misused and used to lead people astray. Truth can be used to be even murderous. So just about any kind of biblical passage or truth or Scripture can be used for evil intent. After his previous temptation or failure... um, He comes at Jesus now, uh, I guess Bible in in underarm, so to speak, quoting Scripture, quoting Psalm 91, 11 and 12. And it's kind of like this, if you will. Okay, so... Uh, You believe in the Bible. You trust God's word. You just quoted it to me. So let me quote to you some scripture because after all, God's word is true and we need to apply it to ourselves, do we not? We need to test it and see what's in it. And we want to give God an opportunity to be true to us. So if it's in God's word, then we really need to do it. So Jesus, now is your chance to prove your tremendous faith. Like you said, don't live just on bread alone, but by the word that comes out of the mouth of God. So live by this word that came out by, from the mouth of God. Throw yourself down, for he says that he will not allow you to be harmed. He will dispatch his angels and you will safely float to the ground. So just go ahead, jump, go ahead, fall, throw yourself down and watch God come to your rescue. Watch your faith in him in action. It reminds me a little bit of, I don't know exactly what you call it, but, uh, the trust fall that people do. And a lot of times they'll do it to build unity at maybe in the workplace or on the, on your team or something and you get on some kind of platform and you, the idea is that you're just going to free fall back And that's a scary feeling, but you're trusting your colleagues and your friends, your teammates to just catch you, cradle you in their arms so that you don't feel that sudden thump when you come down. So so this is a real opportunity for God and Jesus to work together and build that, that teamwork and that trust. So Satan says and tempts Jesus with. Jesus, of course, is at one of his weakest points. He hasn't eaten for quite some time. Uh, He has nobody there to encourage him, only someone there to discourage him, to draw him away. In that sense, in his humanity, he is vulnerable to these kind of temptations. And, of course, Satan wants to disprove him as king, show him that he is not worthy. He is not worthy to be God's son. So he takes Jesus to this high place, uh, A nosebleed height, if you will, to a pinnacle. And some believe that it is Herod's temple. Herod had a high place in his temples built on kind of the edge of a cliff part of it. Uh, Some people say it's very several hundred feet high. It's a portico of Herod. Some some scholars say that it's the same portico that the brother of Jesus, James, was uh, brought to his death. The Pharisees lured him up there. Um, saying that he can speak to the people from the portico, and then they pushed him over it and killed him. So Satan here is offering somewhat of a uh, a seemingly win-win situation, right? Jesus jumps, he shows his tremendous faith, but also then God shows that this really is the Messiah because he promised that he would cradle him and not let any harm come to him in this way. So you're proving the the deity of Christ, you're proving... Uh, the deity of the Father God. Uh, It's a win-win situation. Throw yourself off and let God do the rest. So, is it a win-win? And is this a good idea? I mean, it kind of sounds like it. After all, it's scripture. Let's see what we learn from Satan's response. I'm sorry, Jesus' response in verse 7. Again, it is written... You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. One of the most important rules in hermeneutics, which is the science of interpretation, is Scripture interprets Scripture. And what that means is we can't just take one little isolated truth or one little isolated verse all to ourselves and, 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 and cut it off from the rest of the truth and say this is what it means. Um, we have to... Hear the whole counsel of God, we take every individual piece and we weigh it up against the light of the whole counsel of God. And that's what Jesus does here. He's interpreting scripture with scripture. He doesn't refute what Satan says because in and of itself, it's true. But what he does is he takes that truth and he puts it in his proper context. That's good hermeneutics right there. So we are to trust God in this way, but we are not to test him in this way. This is an attempt to make Jesus exercise his faith or trust God in the wrong way. We can trust God and we can exercise our faith in the wrong way. How so? By creating peril, by putting God in situations where he has to rescue us or else great calamity. Comes about where uh, basically to put God to the test is to force his hand where he has to intervene or we demand of him to intervene. <clears throat> probably the easiest modern day example of putting God to the test and using scripture, I think, out of context um, is what we sometimes see with snake handlers, with snake handlers. There are churches, there are people that practice. Snake handling, and they use scripture to back it up. It's a scripture out of Mark 16:15 through 18. Jesus has just rebuked his disciples for their lack of faith, and then he tells them and how how it should be. He tells them to go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel, baptizing believers. And then he says, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Uh, this text has become somewhat of a prove my faith in the power of God text for some people. Uh, they, they will try to engage in these kind of things just to prove these Faith and power. So somehow other things, if you can't do the other things, maybe cast out the demons or heal the sick. It may resort to um, snake handling to show your faith. Trusting that if you do get bitten by this poisonous snake, God's going to deliver you. It won't even hurt you. Now, I will say that um, if you can't do any of those things, I guess you could just go right on to drinking deadly poison and see how that goes. I am not aware of any congregations that practice that, either because I haven't heard of it or because uh, they're all dead. I don't know which one it is. (laughs) But regardless, the idea is that if you survive, it proves your faith. And, of course, we know the apostle Paul was bitten by a snake. He shook it off and 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 so forth. But that's the idea behind it. But, of course, it's taken out of context. And. it wasn't just a few months ago, I read another article about a pastor who died from handling a poisonous snake. And he got bitten, and nature took its course. And that poison got into his system, and he literally died from it. Now, at first glance, we might look at this temptation and say, you know, I, I really still don't get the temptation because um, he took Jesus up into this really high place, very possibly 700, several hundred feet. And, you know, between you and I, I am not at all enticed. I am not at all tempted to climb any tower Um and just cast myself down. Doesn't come to my mind. It's not something I've always wanted to do. I know there's a few of you in here that wouldn't even be comfortable being as high as this roof line. Um, amen. So, you know, some might be. So what, what exactly? I mean, is it really a temptation? What exactly is going on here? What exactly is, is Satan up to? Have I really clarified anything 10 minutes into the message? Have we nailed it? Do we know what it means to test God? Well, honestly, no, we don't. And to really understand this passage, we have to go back to its original context. I've mentioned before that there are parallels in Jesus in the wilderness and the temptations and Israel's wanderings. ...in the wilderness and their temptations, the things that they experienced. That's why the three responses from Jesus to the enemy are all taken from the single book in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. And in this book, basically, Moses kind of recaps Israel's wanderings and what took place in Exodus. So we want to go back because it actually has origins, this idea of putting God to the test. The book of Deuteronomy, um, chapter 6... Moses gives a sermon or a summary uh, of sorts about the wilderness wanderings. And he particularly chastises the people for putting God to the test. So let's look at this. Verse 16 in Deuteronomy 6 is what Jesus is quoting. When Moses said it, he says it like this to the people of Israel. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As you tested him at Massa. So what happened at Massa? Well, as chronicled in the book of Exodus, you know that God led the people out of Egypt and they would camp and then they would move. They would camp and then they would move. They would camp, set camp up, and then they would move. At this particular place, they set camp up in a place called Rephidim. Now, they had been traveling, so they get to Rephidim. They're tired, they're weary, and they're thirsty, and they start checking the place out. You know, when you get to a new place to camp, you're scoping it out, you're checking it out, and they found that there is not a drop of water, and they don't like this at all. There's no tables with, with cold water bottles on them. They search the town or this place, not a town, it's in the wilderness. There's not even a single water fountain there. There's no Coke machines there. There's nothing to drink. And they start to really, really get upset and complain to Moses. Moses, I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm spitting powder. I need to hydrate. My wife needs to hydrate. My kids need to hydrate. My goats need to hydrate. My chickens need to hydrate. It does say their livestock needed to hydrate. I'm not uh, making all this up. So what's the deal? Why did you bring us out here just to kill us? I, mean, I could be back with my family hovering over a pot of Nile River stew in Egypt. And here I am. I have nothing. I feel like I'm going to perish. And then Moses said these words. Why do you put the Lord your God to test? He's referring, this happened in Exodus chapter 17. Of course, Deuteronomy recounts it. But in the first seven verses, it tells us why he named that place from Rephidim to Masa. Masa means where you put the Lord your God to test, to test. So it became known as the place of testing. Wouldn't it be kind of embarrassing if we had places in town that were named after our mess-ups? You know? Oh, yeah, that's the place of uh, unbelief. And that's where, you know, the, the mosses oh, they just kind of, you know, really blew it and wasn't working for, you know. So if we go around, this is the place of Masa, Well, it's also called Meribah, which means quarrel. That's where you quarreled with Moses. You quarreled with the Lord. And he says that they did this. Now here, Moses says this in, uh, in, I think it's in verse 7, but it's in chapter 17 of Exodus. And here's where it comes. The, our eyes will begin to open as he asks this question. Or as he quotes them for the question they ask the Lord would be better said. They're quarreling and they say this. Is the Lord among us or... Not. Is the Lord with us? Is the Lord among us or not? We don't have anything to drink. We're out here in the wilderness. God, are you with me here or not? What's the deal? Have you ever had those thoughts along your journey? Are you with me or not, God? Based on what I'm experiencing... What's the deal? See, now it starts to make a little more sense. Israel had seen God do great things in the past. I mean, of course, they, they either witnessed or heard about the, the miraculous plagues against the Egyptians. But with their own eyes, can you imagine like this isle seeing the Red Sea split and the water heaped up in walls so that... Hundreds and thousands of people could travel through it on dry land. They watched this. They, they, they lived this. And then they saw God's hand provide bread from heaven, manna, where there was nothing to eat. And then, of course, blow coveys of quail in so they had meat to eat. They, they have just seen God do miraculous things in the past. They watched his power and his capabilities. And then they know about the wonderful future that they have as God's covenant people with Abraham said, you are going to be blessed, blessed and more blessed. You're going to bless the entire world. All of the nations are going to be blessed through your seed, through your people. And so they have this incredible destiny and promise from God of future blessing. The problem is, what about today? What about right now? It's hard right now. Right now we're thirsty. And let's be clear, is, it, is, is the wrongdoing to be thirsty? Is it wrong to be thirsty after, say, hiking or traveling or camping? No, that's a natural response. Just like we get hungry when we don't eat. The problem is not this natural longing of thirst. The problem is that they don't trust God to quench their thirst based on the character of God, based on what God has done in their past and what he says he's going to do in their future. In other words, it's not a thirst problem. It is a trust problem. So you see where this is going? This idea of are we putting God to the test? It doesn't have so much to do about the heights. It's not a height problem. It's not a thirst problem. It is a trust problem. They're they're challenging him. God, why did you bring me out here? This place is scary. This place is dangerous. This place is daring uh, barren. There's nothing out here for me and my family except for death. I mean, what what gives? Are you with us or not? And the idea is that, you know, um, God should apologize because, you know, it's kind of like he he should say, well, you're right. I should have been a better provider. Uh, I should have already had the water bottles for you. And they're thinking, you know, maybe if if you would do this, then I would have any problem following you. And my whole heart would be yours. But, you know, this is what I get. So it's like putting God on Probation. He's the one that brought them out there. Why is this testing God? Because God's already proven himself time and time again in their past. He's come through for them. He's already proven that, yes, he is with them perpetually. If, if they had the faith based on their experience and based on what they know about God, they would know that even with no water in sight, not a drop. They are in good hands with God. They cannot be in better hands than to be in God's hands. They should have known that God has some kind of plan for their welfare, their well being, if they trusted Him at all. But each new trial that comes down the pike to them, they're up in arms. God, where did you go? Are you with me or not? As if God owes them explanations, as if God owes them their own little personal deliverances and their own little personal miracles out of every little situation that challenges them or puts them out of their comfort zone. That's what Moses says is putting God to the test. It's forcing God's hand. Have we ever maybe a little bit tried to force God's hand? Try to demand that he do something for our behalf in such a way that it just really ministers to our heart and our soul. As if God is the one who's on trial instead of us, as if he has to serve us instead of we serve him. So here is say Here is Jesus out in the wilderness and he's really hungry and he's really lonely. And yeah, it's just as dangerous and desolate. And the enemy is saying, you know, uh it, Where's God in all this, in a sense? Where's God in all this? Let's, let's just settle this right now. Throw yourself off this temple. Let's watch him come and keep you from harming yourself. And then this whole issue about whether is God really out here, is God really with me or not, will be settled. It's a good thing to do. Jesus' present circumstances, just like Israel's, are difficult and they are demanding. But Jesus says we should not put God to the test. Now, 40 days before this, he had just been greatly affirmed by his heavenly father. It was the baptism with John the Baptist and the heavens open up kind of like the Red Sea. The heavens open up and this affirming voice comes. This is my son. I love him. I'm sending my spirit upon him and I affirm him. I am pleased with him. He's my true son and he is the king affirming words. And then it was the spirit of God that led Jesus out into the wilderness. And Jesus knows that God is with him. Sometimes we have a short memory and we can go within a 24 hour period of thinking I couldn't love God any more than I do right now. He has just ministered to me so greatly I didn't even know I was capable of having this much faith. And 24 hours later, the circumstances change. And we're God, where are you? What happened? Life's not supposed to be this way. What have you done? As if God has changed. As if he's no longer as powerful or caring or faithful. See, that's a big problem. And God wants to free us from that problem. Jesus refuses to subject himself to this kind of living. It's the kind of living where we think we need uh, some kind of miraculous demonstration to pull us out of these positions that we have put ourselves into. And you know how that works. He, then God has to up the ante because it's, it's a show. It's a demonstration. It's a trick. And it's um, something that we grow tired of. And so it need, he needs to kind of outdo himself each time. How about our pilgrimage? Israel had their wilderness. Jesus had his wilderness. God led him out into it. Well, does not our pilgrimage and our journey also include wildernesses? Not just oasis. Not just the moments in the Jordan River of baptism and the words of affirmation. But as a part of God's sovereign plan, there are wildernesses. There are tests. There are opportunities for us to trust God. Even when he's not pouring out a miracle upon us. You know, as believers, I'm assuming that you're here because God did something great in your past. Assuming you're here for the majority of you because God saved you from a life of sin. He saved you from eternity eternity in hell. And he is working good blessings in your life to the point where you're still amazed at his grace. And, of course, we know as the people of God, we have a tremendous future that God promises us. We are a people of destiny. Even now, the heavens are being prepared for our arrival, the great feast that will take place. The wedding of the Lamb and the church. But What about the here and the now? Maybe today is different. Maybe today is just really difficult. And we're suffering through something. Well, we're just really struggling with sin or sick and tired of something. We're sick and tired of disappointing ourselves or disappointing God or disappointing each other. And life is painful and and life is is hard. And we might wonder what is going on here. God, are you with me or not? I mean, what happened? (coughs) Moses and Jesus says, don't put him to the test like that. We must not insist that God prove himself every time we go through a trial. Every time we might not think he's there, every time we might think he's changed something on us. He's changed his word or his character. A article I read out, uh, just happened to find it, um, published from Gutenberg College, says, Israel and Jesus were not in the wilderness by accident. God led them there. Neither is it an accident when life pushes hard at believers today. We can, if we choose, interpret our troubles as evidence of God's indifference. We would be wrong because God loves us. He uses our troubles to confront us with the spiritual issues we would rather ignore. Our eternal destiny is riding on the choices we are making today. Will we trust God in the midst of our troubles or will we put him to the test? God says he will provide but He will provide in ways that are tantamount to His character, to His justice, to His love, to His grace and His mercy. And some might be thinking, but Malachi 3, verse I think it's verse 10, where God says, test me in this. And He's talking about the tithes and offerings. That's true. There are times where God invites the test, but that was already something that had been laid out in the law when he established the tithes and offerings and he says, here's how it's going to work. You voluntarily, cheerfully bring me this tithe and you will be blessed because it's built into the very fabric of the universe. You can't help but to be blessed when you do certain things in faith and obedience to God. Now, it doesn't always come the way we think. So he's telling them in Malachi, just do this. It's already an established principle and see what happens. Go ahead and test the law. Test my word. Test my character. You will see that it's true. But we can test God in a way that does not line up to his character because it's on our terms. And we want our own little personal convenient miracle or deliverance and we are demanding each time god prove yourself to me again that wasn't enough prove yourself to me again that wasn't enough how many times should god have to prove himself to us before we finally realize he is trustworthy and faithful that he can bring something from nothing that all things are possible with god practically speaking ask ourselves that question how much is enough How many times should God have to prove himself to us on our terms, for our convenience? God wants to deliver us from that kind of living. It's it's infantile. It's not mature in the faith. It's changing our mind about the character of God based on circumstances. That's a terrible kind of life. Can you imagine he's about to bring them into the promised land? Does he want them just freezing Every time they face some kind of trial, life is filled with trials and they're there on purpose. And we need these kind of trials. It's not a thirst problem. It is a trust problem. So, in closing, we know that not only will the tempter cast out, but he will also misuse scripture to draw us away from. From God, He is the false teacher that's behind every false teaching that you've ever been exposed to. And he wants to get us to trust bread instead of God. So we're dependent on that. And he wants us to put God to the test. He wants us to risk our lives or put ourselves in precarious situations and, and call out to God to deliver. So we need to be on guard against the things that we currently lack or we currently long for, or that we're currently struggling with. We want to be on guard because the wilderness can be dangerous. The wilderness can be lonely. There are times where we will lack. Maybe God has us in a season of loneliness. The wilderness can be scary and dangerous. Maybe we are in a place of uncertainty. We're just not sure right now where God wants me to go. We're just here and we're going to wait for further word. The wilderness can be harsh and demanding. Uh, Maybe we're lacking good health. Maybe we're lacking things that we would really like to have right now. But what we don't want to say is, okay, God, I'm going to jump. I'm expecting you to prove yourself to me. I'm expecting you to catch me. I'm expecting you to do your thing. I'm going to put my life at risk. I'm going to put my reputation at risk, put my marriage at risk. My family at risk. How many times do we need to do that? Do we want to make God like us or do we want to become like him? Is the Lord among us or not. God's already proven himself in Christ. He, he's proven his love. He's proven his faithfulness on the cross. Christ is sufficient for all things. says it in his his words, and he lived it out on the cross. He's already as real as he can be. There's no need to jump. There's no need to handle a snake. There's no need to drink poison. There's no need to put things of great value in peril to prove that God will keep his word. He keeps it in Christ. Absolutely guaranteed. So we want to live God's way. We want to live God's story. Don't let Satan whisper this trash into our ears, doubt and temptations. We can trust God and he will not disappoint. Christ is our king. He is that one thing that we long for. The Lord is my portion. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.